Welcome to another episode of Down to Earth Cornell Conversations About. I am Dr. Danielle Eisman, visiting lecturer in the Department of Communication at Cornell University. In this episode, we discuss the aspect of science identity and how that influences a person's engagement with science communication. Our interest in science can be influenced by culture and our experiences with science. Many people's first and only interaction with science is in school. After leaving school, they may never interact with science again, unless perhaps in informal ways. However, those that enjoy science and are motivated to pursue science beyond secondary education often do so because they perceive themselves as someone that can do science. This perception really relates to our overall self-concept and identity. Our self-concept is a culmination of all the things we think about ourselves, how we look, where we fit in amongst friends, our views on life, etc. The elements that make up our self-concept are known as identity. This includes self-esteem, our consciousness, and self-image. However, much of our self-concept is really just a perception of how we think the world views us and how we behave. If you perceive yourself as someone that is not good at science or someone that cannot be successful in science, you may not be motivated to seek out science information. And for a person to develop their self-concept in a way that allows them to perceive themselves as someone that can do science, an identity activation must occur. Identity activation occurs when a person's abilities are recognized by others, such as in school, in the media, at home, or other informal environments. And even if a student or a person is not recognized for their science competency in formal learning environments, online communities, museums, science fairs, and festivals, or the media may fill this gap and thus activate and man maintain a science identity for an individual. We can tie this more closely to the communication theory of identity. The theory suggests that identity and communication are inextricably linked such that how we express ourselves is influenced by our social roles and our identity. And simultaneously, the ways in which we express ourselves reinforces our identity. Now, if we look at identity a little bit deeper, the literature on identity has identified four layers or frames of identity. The concept of identity frames relates to framing theory, where different aspects of an issue, or in this case, identity, are highlighted to become more salient at different points in time or in different situations. The four frames of identity are personal, enacted, relational, and communal. The personal frame reflects our internal self-view. The enacted frame is the version of ourself we display or perform among others. The relational frame is when we internalize those aspects that other people perceive of you. This can also reflect your identity in terms of your relationships, such as with a spouse, a friend, child, or partner. And the last frame is communal, which refers to how your social group compares itself to others. These frames overlap and do not occur in isolation, so different aspects of our identity are activated at different points in time. For example, different aspects of your identity may come out in class compared to at home, and with friends compared to colleagues or in work settings. Identity is inherently communicative, interactive, and emergent. 
We are continually building, reinforcing, and maintaining our identity through the things that we buy, the media we pay attention to, the way we dress, the foods we eat, the friends we make, and the information that we seek out, as well as the things that we post on social media. And although identity frames relate more to communication in general, we can relate it back to science communication more specifically with how science is portrayed in school, through program recruitment and through media. And so if you don't fit a certain media ideal, if you are not shown the less glamorous side of science, such as failure, repetition, and lack of funding, if your identity frames do not connect in meaningful ways with existing representations of doing science and being a scientist, then in general, science communication may not engage with you or be engaging to you. And so getting into identity work and connecting with different aspects of identity, there is a way that individuals can begin to see themselves as scientists based on the story being told by a science communicator. So for example, for me growing up, there really weren't that many social models for me to connect with in terms of identity. Scientists were portrayed mainly as male, but there were few instances where women played the role of scientists in popular film and television series. So for me, despite this lack of a social model in the media that I consumed, science to me still meant adventure and suspense, solving puzzles neatly within one to two hours. But working in the lab did not match my perceptions of what it meant to be a scientist. You didn't get to see how long it takes to reach the cutting edge or the many, many, many failed experiments. And so... Despite this inaccuracy of how science is portrayed in the media, especially in fictional television series, studies show that the accuracy of science on television doesn't have much effect on people's cultural and social perceptions of science. So I suppose that's why I ended up pursuing a degree in chemistry, despite my misconceptions of working in a lab. And bringing this aspect of identity back to science communication, it's important to remember that even if you cannot change a person's identity, especially their science identity, good science communication should be able to break through that barrier so that even if a person does not consider themselves a science person, whatever that means, they should still be able to make an informed judgment about an information source and expertise, regardless of their level of technical knowledge. Of course, we know, given that the prevalence of false information that is spread on the internet and the high level of belief of false information, science communication has somewhat failed in its goal. We need more people out there sharing factual information so that the public can make these informed judgments on what is accurate, what is useful, and what is good science. And so as we attempt to understand science communication and its connection to identity, it is useful to broaden this understanding to culture. Science communication in conjunction with culture allows for meaning making. In other words, culture can shape our interpretation and understanding of science in general, but also how we process or come to understand scientific information. And so for science to be part of who we are and our culture, science has to have meaning within our everyday lives. We accomplish this through experience, identity work, fiction, or storytelling that includes science and emotion. Now, Brianna, Daniel, and I will discuss how you can develop science identity.
So the first topic for the next episode or the, the topic of the next episode is science identity. So I don't know if either of you are familiar with this topic, although Daniel has probably heard this in class a couple of times. Um, but it's really thinking about your self-concept and who you are and you have multiple versions of yourself. And uh, one of those big barriers, which we've talked about a couple of times on the podcast is that um, if people don't see themselves as someone that can do science, they'll kind of shy away from it. Um, and so I was wondering about your own experiences with your science identity. Um, I guess I can go. So I know like probably in high school, I thought I was like so good at science and then I got to Cornell and I took like gen chem and then like my love for science kind of like went away in a sense, <laughs> just cause like it was so difficult, but I feel like I was just grouping in like a difficult science class, like gen chem with like all science. Mm-hmm. And like not really considering like, oh, like a de-social class, it could be like a social science class or um, like comparative physiology is like another science class. It's not just chem or just mm-hmm. physics. So um, I guess like definitely like after doing the podcast too, I kind of like start to think like, okay, like just because I don't like chem doesn't mean I can't like other sciences, mm-hmm. but it definitely like, sh- like taking classes, like pre-med classes definitely like shaped my relationship with science (laughs) yeah Daniel what about you so as for me I don't really have like a huge like any kind of identity with science I'm just I'm just someone that's like always trying to learn and just accepting the new information that comes out there I would say though that I'm definitely like a supporter of science I know there's a lot of people that they actually are kind of like opposed to the advancement of it either for because I know there are some types of like moral things, moral things that have conflict with with science, like especially in regards to ethics and stuff. But um, in general, like I am a supporter of science. I think overall it is an improvement to our lives when you advance science. So yeah, I I support the advancement of it and I'm always open to uh, just new information that comes out and accepting Mm -hmm. of it. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah, I mean, both equally important aspects of how we view our own interactions with science. And I know we ended up having a, a venting session last fall in uh, science writing for media where people that have taken that chemistry class or OCHEM, organic chemistry, had just complained. <laughs> and they were like, and it, it's, and I, I think that echoes my own experiences too, because I was always, I was good at science and uh, especially chemistry and physics. And then I got to college and it's significantly harder than it is in, in high school. And, and then it, it, it's, um, disrupts your, your self-concept. If you have always, if you've always seen yourself as somebody that can do science and will be a scientist and, and can handle things like organic chemistry. Um, and then you're, you find out that you can't, it's, you kind of have to adjust things a little bit. Um, and then even, you know, for people that maybe haven't had that experience um, as late as 
high school and college. So people that maybe had negative experiences with science when they're younger, they may not still um, approve of science or value science be just because it didn't uh, reflect their science, their self-concept. And so they will kind of move away from accepting scientific information because they just never saw themselves as someone who was good at science. So do you think like academic performance could actually play a huge role in that or your identity to, to science? Yeah, I think that the way, the way that we assess people throughout their, their education is it, it can be harmful in, in this particular case, especially, um, you know, that maybe if we, you know, taught science in a way that taps into people's natural curiosity, and then we assess their ability to develop that logic or question the world around them in a way that's less, um, I don't know, um, prescriptive maybe, um, you know, that, that's a little bit more open, then we can, we can help people be more open to scientific information. Yeah, and I definitely think like, even when you're younger, like how your teacher kind of introduces science also plays a role. Cause I was like lucky to have in seventh grade, like a teacher who's really hands-on and would like do like experiments before introducing topics. And she would like reference the, the little like lab experiments that we would do, mm -hmm. um, just make it like really fun and interesting, which made me like start liking science at like a younger age. Yeah, and so it, it's, you know, it, there's multiple I guess, touch points or, or interactions that we can have with science throughout our lives that will help build up that openness to scientific information. And, um, you know, school is a big part of that because we spend so much time at school. But then also, you know, having parents that are supportive of, um, you know, working on, on scientific studies or take you to museums or you know watch tv shows or even just talking about scientific news at home around the dinner table those are all things that can really influence how a person perceives science as they get older and their interest in it and you know so even if they aren't you know pursuing a career in in science um they would still be accepting of information yeah just to go off off that and and also like about teachers like introducing science to you I remember back in like sixth grade I had a science teacher that was just extremely good at just getting you to like tap into natural curiosity mm -hmm. and um instead of just being like a teacher that you just have to work hard you have to get the right answer and just get an A it was more just about again getting you to just tap into natural curiosity with the outside world. And just like some of the examples of that is in, in everything she did, she had like, just like really good analogies of how it can, of what, what we're doing can relate to your everyday life. And mm -hmm. uh, I remember like there was one instance where we did this like really long experiment during the year where we took these Petri dishes full of jello. We were like testing like growth of bacteria. Mm -hmm. and we, we like went out on this like, hike in the woods and she's just like okay uh find one thing that you think has no bacteria on it and one thing 
thing that you think does have bacteria on it. And you could pick any object you wanted. Some people were even collecting like gear droppings and stuff to test. Mm-hmm. But um, I remember we were like doing that experiment for like a month. I ended up dropping all my stuff on the ground, like after weeks of research. And I'm thinking, great, I'm, I'm failing this now. I just, I just ruined all my equipment. And all she does is she just says, okay, I want you to write that in now. Right at this point, you dropped that. That got in contact with the floor. And, th- and then I want you from this point on to test how that affects uh, the growth of bacteria or whatever it was. And so again, like just instead of like, just like failing me, she like still got me to be curious of what I was doing. And it was just like, I don't know. She just got me to see science as something that that's like open that you can all you can always be developing on instead of something that's just just like a burden and something stressful and you have to get a good grade on Mm -hmm. yeah I think a lot of people struggle that with that especially at Cornell that you know they always you know students want the right answer they have to have like a clear correct answer and I think what's unique about especially the, the classes that I teach that are really focused on social science or the interpretation and, and sharing of, of science is um, that there isn't a completely right answer or one right answer. There's multiple approaches. And we tend to forget that when we move over to the, the natural sciences or life sciences um, that's you know, there's always something new that can be learned, whether you make a mistake or not. But I think, well, and I guess we could talk about how, you know, having a, a science identity or viewing yourself as someone that can either do science or communicate about science is another important part of effective science communication. So you have to have a strong communication identity or science communication identity or science identity to communicate about it effectively. So if you're, you know, it's having that confidence when you're talking to people about a subject area that then gets them excited and interested. And so you think that shines through in both of the teachers that you describe that they had that, that confidence, they viewed themselves as somebody that can do science and can make it interesting and and then that, that trickles into how you perceive science and, and as you move forward in your lives, whether or not you, you continue to do bench work or play with Petri dishes and Jello, um, <laughs> or not. <laughs> yeah, and even like as a public health major, um, communication is so important, especially as you see like during the pandemic and being able to like convey like real life information to people um, and follow like CDC guidelines and protocols and like convince like a whole like group of people to follow these rules and why they should follow it. And um, just like seeing how important it is um, in like public health communication. So it's always like great to know how to like convey information (laughs) you know in a way that does not threaten their identity so that that's i guess another another aspect of certain science communication because a lot of people 
will reject information if it threatens their identity and their core beliefs. And we see that a lot with, with climate change. And we've seen that with, the, um, with a lot of the, the health um, issues that are happening right now where, you know, it's somehow become a political issue that we wear masks or, or climate change is a political issue and, and as opposed to a scientific issue. And it's because people, people's political ideology becomes such a core aspect of who they are and how they pre present themselves as well as the, the different groups that they're members of. And all of that plays a role in their core self-concept. And so if all of a sudden you present information that goes against those beliefs and those groups and those ideologies, then they're going to reject that information. And so it could be very challenging to then try and communicate things in a straightforward way that doesn't threaten a person's identity. Yeah, that's especially bad in, like you said, in politics, especially if you have a, a leader that's like trying to get elected or reelected and they know they have to like a, appeal to certain people to get elected. Like they know if, if they say the wrong thing, even if it's not, or, or they have to say like the certain thing, even if it's not like scientifically accurate, like if they say something that goes against the, not just their own identity, but the group's identity, you know, that jeopardizes their chances of getting reelected. They might just have to kind of say whatever's going to get them elected. And if it's not, if it kind of goes against just the natural facts of science, that can be a huge problem because then all their supporters, they're going to like reinforce those like false ideas. And then they'll say like, Oh, look, our, our leader said that or whoever they're trying to vote for. So that can be a huge problem there and I think it's it'd be really helpful if just like the highest thinking scientists themselves if they could be if they could just identify as science communicators I think that would be I think it would just solve like a lot of our problems today because I think like if you look at where people get most of their science information or their science sources it's either like what maybe social media platforms or sources that just aren't, you know, aren't, they're not like high thinking scientists or really credible sources, but it's like, you don't really hear much from like the actual experts themselves. It's like, where are they exactly? And that's because there's like so many different steps in communication. It, it keeps getting translated so many times and that can get kind of misleading or uh, spun out of control. And yeah, I think if like experts themselves could just identify as you know, science communicators and that, that would fix a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of, um, you know, when the, the social dilemma came out on Netflix last year and then all of a sudden everybody was so freaked out about social media and and, and they viewed it as so negative and, and they were like, social media is ruining our lives. And, that <laughs> and But then... You know, it presented one side of the story and I, it got to a point where I was sitting there and I watched it and I was like, this is like a commercial for the, the good, what is it? Good or the, the center for technology innovation or oh, whatever that, that one organization was that they interviewed a bunch of the people from. 
And it was like, they're promoting their institute. Oh yeah. And a lot of them were like retired from, I think Google or something like that. Yeah. Google and, and Facebook. And they started yeah. this institute. And so they were really like promoting the institute. I was like, this isn't a real documentary about the science or the psychology that occurs on social media this is a uh, infomercial about this institute like that. <laughs> so, yeah. um, like if you look at like who's being interviewed it was very like like it was they were speaking out against like those big companies mm-hmm. yeah and it, there are there are um research studies that do show negative aspects of social media but then there's also equally if not more studies that show the positive impacts of social media and so it's the way that the media presents research on social media they they go with like the negative because it it's interesting and it gets people ramped up and it it plays into their emotions whereas the positives of social media aren't that exciting so people don't really report on that and and so what a lot of people don't understand, and it's unfortunate about this, the social dilemma, is that the science of the impact of social media is still, you know, it's still in production. It's, we're still trying to understand the effects of social media. But what we are able to show is that, or what studies are able to show is that those people that spend you know, kind of a, a, a large amount of time on social media and are already depressed or already have the precursors for anxiety, those are the people that tend to experience more of the negative aspects of social media. Whereas people that, you know, maybe look at it from time to time and they're not that compulsive about it, they don't really experience negative effects how people just receive information. They kind of like passively receive that information and they don't take it upon themselves to dig more deeply into those discussions or into those topics. And so they just kind of accept that information without having that natural curiosity come out where they will, would dig into it a little bit more. Yeah, and I definitely know I was guilty of it. Like after watching The Social Dilemma, um, my friends and I were like, oh my gosh, like this is horrible. Like we fell into this trap. Um, but then like, we kind of were like discussing and we're like, okay, maybe this might be a little bit biased just because like, we're looking at who's being interviewed and it's all like ex Google and like ex like Facebook employees. And like, um, like that's also a reason also like, I think what also made it worse was just like, they had like kind of like acting in it too, but the mm-hmm. acting was like, you could definitely relate to, and you could definitely see people falling into this trans or like, they just go home and go straight onto social media for hours. And obviously like those are the extreme cases, but like we all, I feel like most people, especially in my age group, I think we all know at least like one person who's just so like engrossed in social media that it's just, it's just like, you know, it kind of hits close to home. You're like, oh, like, you know, like I definitely know people who are like very obsessed with it or like, let me post everything I'm doing or let me do this all the time and let me look at what other people are doing. Mm -hmm. like I definitely could see like why it was scary but I also know like I did not do more research (laughs) on it after I kind of just took what they said like as truth just because like it was a documentary and you're like oh like 
why would they lie or why would they have both in it? It's a documentary, but obviously that makes more sense now <laughs> why they would. <laughs> Thank you again for joining us. You can find us on Twitter at down to earth underscore pod or on Instagram at down to earth.podcast. You can also find links to the materials we reference and read along on our blog, which is www.dearprofessor.org backslash blog. <laughs>